This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I am so glad you are listening and would really appreciate your rating this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. I'm so grateful for those of you who've already done that. If you have personalized book questions, I can be reached at cindyhburnett at att.net, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I am interviewing Alka Josie. Born in Jodhpur, India, Alka has lived in the United States since the age of nine. She graduated from Stanford University and worked in the fields of advertising and PR before starting her own marketing consultancy in 1995. In 2011, she obtained her MFA in creative writing from the California College of Arts in San Francisco, California. The Hannah Artist is her first novel. Welcome, Alka. I'm looking forward to discussing The Hannah Artist with you. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you. And I'm really, I've heard so many good things about your book and I've actually just begun it and I'm loving it already. So I can't wait to hear a little bit more about it. Will you just kind of give me the basic description of the storyline? Yes, we are following Lakshmi's story. Lakshmi is a henna artist living in Jaipur. She is 30 years old. We know very little about her because she is so careful not to reveal things about herself. But as the story progresses, we realize that she had a husband whom she deserted many years ago in a small village. We also realize that she has a sister she didn't know existed who had been born after she left the village. And now suddenly her husband and that sister show up at her doorstep just when Lakshmi is completing the final touches on this house that she has built and living this independent life that she has built for herself. Suddenly those two show up to complicate matters for her. So what prompted you to write this book? I wrote the book for my mother. My mother had a very traditional arranged marriage uh, in 1955, which is when the book is starting. And she never had the opportunity to determine her own destiny. So she had the arranged marriage. She had kids right away. By the time she's 22, she's got three small kids. She is moving many different cities because my father's engineering job kept moving him from place to place in Rajasthan. And then suddenly she's moving us all to the United States where dad went to get a doctorate. And she is always this very obedient, traditional mother. But here is what she did that was really remarkable. She made sure that I, her only daughter, was going to get to live a very different life, a life where I made all the choices, where I determined whom I would marry, whether I would have children, how many I would have, what kind of career I would have. And so to thank her for raising me so differently and for raising me as a woman who could have the power to determine her own destiny, I wanted to thank her. And so I based the henna artist on her, reimagining a life for her where she got to live a life in fiction that she never got to live in real life. Oh my gosh, I just love that. That is just so wonderful. Was, it, was there a lot of pushback from your father? I mean, was he happy the way that she was raising you and allowing you to have those freedoms? I think my father was so busy working. 
you know, he was, my dad's always been very self-motivated and he is a real go-getter. And so he was busy getting his doctorate and he was busy establishing a career for himself in the United States and always out on projects where, you know, in different cities where he's doing geotechnical foundations and so on. And my mother was essentially raising us at home. I don't think he realized that we were all being raised in a very Western tradition until one day when my mother got a letter from her father in India and she was cooking and she said to me, honey, will you please read this letter for me? I looked at the letter and all of the Hindi was scrambled in my brain. And I said, mom, I can't read this. That was the first time she realized that we had lost our language, our ability to read our language. We still understood the language because she mainly spoke it at home, but we all were speaking English because we were going to school speaking English and we were hanging out with our friends who were all speaking English. So we had just naturally gravitated towards English and forgotten our first language. And then I think when she told my dad, he was surprised too, but then he always spoke English at home. So it shouldn't have come as a big surprise to anybody. But I think that over time, he accepted the fact that we were just Americanized kids. And both of them, I think, were very non-traditional in the sense that they thought the, uh, the more quickly we assimilated to the American culture, the more quickly we could learn the language, speak the language, write the language, become proficient in the language, the better off we would be, the better off our futures would be. And I think they were absolutely right. We never lost the DNA we came from because that is so much a part of us. So we still all prefer Indian food to any other kind of food. We still are very uh, conscious of how amazing the Indian people are and what an amazing country we have come from. But in our outward appearance, in our outward thoughts, and in our ability to maintain a very independent life from our culture, we are very American. So the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, I think so. Well, good. I like that. Did you have to do any research for this story? Lots. Oh my gosh. This is one of the reasons why it took me 10 years to write this book, because I did a lot of research and it took the form of many different realities. Number one, I did a lot of interviews. My parents were both born before independence, were alive during independence, and of course, we were in India after independence. So they all understood what was going on in the country, what people were feeling like. My father was one of the first generation of young men who became engineers and helped to rebuild India's infrastructure after independence in the 50s. So it was wonderful to be able to talk to them about what it was like for them growing up, uh, what the Quit India movement was all about, which my dad was totally into as a teenager, what it was like for my mother to be reading all of these film magazines and look and life and learning what life was like on the other side of the world. So that was all really wonderful. I also interviewed other Rajput families and other Brahmin families, and I talked to shopkeepers every time I visited India. I talked to teachers. I talked to the principal of the Maharani Gayatri Devi School, which is a school that I used as a model for in the book. 
And then another form of research took place in terms of all of the fiction that I've read. I've read a lot of fiction by Indian authors that was written in the 40s and 50s. I also watched a lot of movies during that time. And in 1955, there was a wonderful rom-com produced in Hollywood called Mr. and Mrs. 55. And it was starring Madhubala, who is an actress whom I mentioned in the book several times. She was so big at that time. She and her intended husband are in an arranged marriage. They have been arranged. And 1955 was the first year that a divorce was made legal in India. So it's a rom-com because in, initially she is objecting to the marriage. She doesn't want to be married. She wants to live an independent life. But in the end, she sort of falls in love with this guy and they remain married so they don't get a divorce. <laughs> but a third way that I did my research was, of course, doing a lot of work on all the herbal remedies that I mentioned in the book. So I checked with Ayurvedic folks and I did a lot of research on the internet on all these modalities, all the herbal remedies that were being used at that time and are still used in India today as opposed to favoring the Western medicine. Oh, that's fascinating. I think that's so neat that you were able to interview your own parents about some of it and, you know, just hear their own perspectives, especially considering you kind of used your mom as the source for the story. That's great. But that is a lot of research. No wonder it took a long time. How did you keep it all straight? Did you have a sort of a system for keeping up with the various things you were researching? I have so many notebooks filled with notes. So like stacked up to here. The, the interesting thing about when you do research is that very little of it actually makes it into the book. It's really just informing your mind about the background of what you're trying to convey. The actual words that you put in your book, you know, you may, out of a, a notebook that might be this thick, I might use three sentences out of that that actually make it into the book. But yeah, lots and lots of research. And sometimes I would just be putting things on scraps of paper as I discovered them. Or like when I was in Jaipur and I would visit these Ayurvedic uh, pharmacies and I would just look at all of the different uh, remedies, all of the different bottles and lotions and things that they had and just making little notes like, you know, what is in these things? It's amazing how Indians see no contradiction between the Eastern modality and the Western modality when it comes to their health. They can go to an Ayurvedic doctor in the morning and a medical doctor in the afternoon, and there's no conflict in their minds about combining those two. Well, if it works, I mean, you know, if they find that that's a remedy that works, then that, <laughs> go for it. That's the best way. And you probably had all sorts of rabbit holes that you went down. I mean, I even find sometimes when I'm reading a book and I look up some person or place or event, and then all of a sudden, an hour later, I'm still reading all these other things that were not even from the book. I'm sure with research, it really takes you down a bunch of those. Oh, Cindy, that is so true. And you find so many fascinating little pieces of information. For example, when I was looking up the Victorian watches, those erotica that were made in the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s, I was so enamored of them. And I was looking at all of the little elements that went into them and how I was going to design imaginatively the Victorian watch that Samir ends up giving 
to Lakshmi. I mean, that all came from my imagination after looking at a whole bunch of these watches. And then I started thinking, I want one of these watches for myself. <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say, that you now have a Victorian watch collection. <laughs> oh, and then uh, there were other pieces of research that were so fascinating that I ended up putting in the book, like the Maharajas who believed their astrologers, when the astrologers said, your own natural born son is going to try to dethrone you. So you may want to adopt a child outside of your family. And they followed that advice. They actually did that sort of thing. Another piece of research was that uh, many of the palaces did have a, an Alexandrine parakeet or parrot in their palaces as a pet because number one, it was pretty. Uh, number two, it was entertaining because it would imitate everybody who came by <laughs> and <laughs> whom the parakeet was listening to. And so I made that part of the book as well. There were so many fascinating things that I found. Oh, and then all of the things that Lakshmi is doing to experiment with geranium oil and lavender oil and different things that she's putting on her ladies' hands and feet and their various bodies. These were all oils that I started researching, uh, essential oils, and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if she used this? Wouldn't it be wonderful if she used that? Uh, so those were all really fun to research. And then, you know, I started using lavender in my bath because I realized that it has a lot of calming properties. And sure enough, every time I use lavender in my bath, I start falling asleep. <laughs> I'm like, I, I tell my husband, I go, honey, if you, will you please check up on me in a half hour in case I have drowned in the tub? Yeah, you haven't sunk down into the, um, my middle daughter had trouble with sleep for years. And so we would get lavender spray for her pillow and sometimes the lavender um, in the bath or shower. And that helps a lot. It really does soothe you and calm you down. Yeah. And I think that as women, we really need a lot more of those kinds of herbal treatments to make us feel better. Like, I just think that women really respond to herbal remedies far more than they do to medicinal remedies. I don't know if it's because we have a superior sense of smell or, or feeling or touch or whatever, but I just think that maybe because we handle babies and children more, that perhaps we have more of a sensitivity to herbal concoctions than maybe men do. Well, and I think over time, people have realized with studies and things like that, that a lot of that really does help. And so, you know, anything that helps is always worth trying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing I am so excited to ask you about is the Reese Witherspoon thing. I, every month, the first day of the month, I'm looking it up. What book has she picked this month? I think her <laughs> picks are just fabulous. I almost always love them. A lot of times I've already read them. So tell me all about that because that is, I'm just dying to hear about it. Uh, Reese Witherspoon is an amazing woman who is using her influence for good. And one of the things that she focuses on are books that are female-centric written by women. So she wants strong protagonists, and she also wants to be able to use that as a way to uplift women, which I think is a phenomenal thing for somebody to use their influence for. She's the only one who's actually doing that particular thing. And so when I got the call from the editor, it was in middle of March, and she said, by the way, Reese Witherspoon is going to pick your book for May. And I was completely over the moon. I had no idea how she learned of it. I don't know where 
the book landed in her hands. I don't know how it landed in her hands. But from then on, I had to keep quiet about Reese's pick until May 1st, because she's the only one who gets to reveal what the pick is. And so then for the next six months, um, I was helping the Hello Sunshine people put together the content that they have to do for their social media. And so this is something they ask all their authors to participate in because authors will know exactly what is in the book and what could be used as further information for readers to be interested in the book. So I had such a ball. I was writing about how Indian saris are styled. I wrote about my mother's wedding jewelry and all kinds of different ways that the Jaffer jewelry artisans have developed jewelry over time and why Jaffer is such a big place for jewelry in the world. I did a cooking video. I developed recipes that my mother had taught me. I put those down. I even had my older brother develop a cocktail for the Maharani who likes to drink her gin and tonics. <laughs> I saw that. I was actually on her site, just kind of looking at some of it before we were speaking. And I saw some of what you're describing. And I think that's one of the, what both the, the female centric with strong female characters is I think the number one reason that I really like her picks, but also I like all the content she does with them and how fun it is. And she does all these creative things like we'll pull a couple of the past authors together to give clues for the next book, things like that. I just think she's very creative and it is wonderful that she is using her platform to promote literacy. Yeah. And one of the things they told me when the month of May was over, her social media manager said to me, now, you know, this isn't the last time that we will be talking to you because all throughout the year, when your paperback comes out, when your sequel comes out, when there is any kind of a screen adaptation that's been announced of your book, we will promote you. And so that's really cool too, is that our association does not end at the end of the month. We are in this wonderful coterie now of authors who are all uh, writing about these very strong women. So I feel like I'm in a club now that is very empowering. You are. And it's a great club to be in. And I think that is neat that it's not just for the month of May, but that it continues on. And so you just mentioned a sequel. Will you tell me a little bit about what you're working on? Yes. You know what's remarkable is that while it took me 10 years to develop these characters very deeply and to write the scenes very convincingly, it only took me about eight months or so to write the sequel because now I know these characters so well. And one of the characters, Malik, was very clear in my head that he had a story he really wanted to tell me. So I set aside another project I was working on uh, for creative writing. And I thought, okay, Malik, go ahead and tell me what you need to tell me. <laughs> and, it, and his story came so easily. It was amazing. It has a lot of the same characters from the henna artist. It is titled The Royal Jewel Cinema and is going to be coming out in June of next year. Uh, I think right around the same time that my paperback uh, for The Henna Artist comes out. And then while I was writing that, I got the idea for the third book, and that'll make a trilogy now. And then the third book, we have Radha's story. So the young girl who is 13 and The Henna Artist is now a grown woman of 30, and she has her own family. And uh, somebody is looking for her. And I bet if, you could, if you've read The Henna Artist, you'll know who is going to come looking for his birth mother. <laughs> 
Oh, well, that's fabulous. So not only you have one sequel, but two. And I love trilogies. I mean, that's a great number. It just seems like it's very fun to read in three. And there's a lot of them that are very popular. And that's nice that you have it all planned out. And I think it's perfect when the paperback comes out around the time of the next book, because you can just kind of do all of that together with the publishing and promoting. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's really fun. And I have such a great team at Mira, which is a division of HarperCollins and Harlequin. They are phenomenal at doing the publicity, doing the sales and marketing. I think they designed a beautiful cover. That was going to be my next question actually was about the cover. So yes, in a second, you can tell me about that. You know, Cindy, I thought that as somebody who has been in marketing and advertising her whole life, I thought I would get to design the cover. I thought, thought, oh, well, you know, this is so nice. They're, of course, they're going to let me determine what the cover is going to be. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We have a team of people who do covers and they know how to design covers for every book that we put out. So I said, oh, okay. So then I thought, oh, no, you like, what if I don't like the cover? What if I don't like the cover? And then I got the PDF. And they had winnowed the choices down to four. And this was the first one that opened up. The cover you see today It was the first page of the PDF. And I was in love with it from day one. I had to call my husband in and I said, Brad, Brad, have a look at this. Oh, my God, have a look. <laughs> what do you think? And he goes, oh, it's perfect. It's fabulous. It's so, stunning. Um, it yeah. is stunning. Did they let you pick from the four? They wanted my input on the four. And when I saw this, I said, oh, absolutely, please make it number one. I think that what they want, of course, is the author to love the cover because an author who loves the cover is going to be very high on the production of the book. And so they want you to love it. So they don't want put out a cover that the author is not going to love. But I think that if they had liked one of the other ones better, they might have gone with that one, especially if their research showed that that would have been the one that would make women pick up uh, the cover. But what's beautiful about the henna artist cover is that it is the color of henna, especially when it is well applied and it's got the right combination of lemon and sugar and oil in it so that it gives you this really rich maroon cinnamon sort of imprint. Well, it's just beautiful and the light and everything. I just like the way they did that. And I think Mira just hits it out of the ballpark with their covers and their yeah. books, really. I think they, they do a great job of being selective. And I always enjoy a book I read by them. Oh, Cindy, thank you. I'll pass that along to them. I think that's a wonderful compliment for them and the entire team that works on this. They knew from day one when their pub board decided that they were going to buy this manuscript that it was going to be a book club book. They, they felt it right away, and that is how they marketed it from day one. They said, this is the kind of book that women can really discuss because there are so many different female characters in the book. There are so many different issues being discussed in the book, and while it is a creative story, and it is fiction. It addresses many serious subjects. It addresses the subject of women's destiny and who gets to make the choices in a woman's life. It addresses contraception. It addresses adoption. It addresses also the fidelity and infidelity. 
And so these are all serious issues that all women have to deal with, make choices about. And I just think that it's wonderful that women are finding not only on the surface level, the joy of reading a story that is entertaining, but also on a deeper level, the joy of reading a story about women who are conquering all kinds of obstacles set in front of them. No, I agree completely. Those are my favorite types of stories. So, and I think that those stories really do resonate with women. And then you also hit the New York Times on your debut. How exciting was that? (laughs) Well, the New York Times, and then that was followed by USA Today and the LA Times and Toronto Star and Globe and Mail. Every day I would open up my email and there would be another note from the publisher saying, okay, now we've made the indie bestseller list. You know, we made the Amazon summer picks. Uh, And so all of that came as, I think, a real surprise to me. And I don't know that any of that would have happened without Reese Witherspoon's endorsement. I mean, I just kudos to her. And I have so much gratitude in my heart for her for having put the book at the forefront of everybody's minds. Because think about this, Cindy. My book was released on March 3rd. March 3rd. The pandemic had just started. Every single book event that I was supposed to be a part of, every conference, every trip that the publisher had planned for me got canceled. And all of a sudden, I thought, I have spent 10 years working on this book, and I am not going to get a chance to talk to any readers. I mean, I just pulled the covers over my head and I just thought, just kill me now. Just kill me now. <laughs> and early on in the pandemic, well, first of all, people didn't think it was going to last nearly this long, but also nobody was familiar with all this online things. And I've been talking with authors recently whose books are coming out right now. And I think that that, that timing is a lot better. And of course, thankfully you had Reese and that, that, that helped. But I mean, people were scrambling and weren't familiar with Zoom and Facebook Live and all these things. So yes, that was not an ideal time to have a book debuting. Yes, but you know what I think? Every setback that we have in our lives is an opportunity to have something positive uh, come out of it. And so for me, what's happened is that because I can't go out and meet readers, Zoom has been a terrific way for me to be able to be in touch with readers. And so I just completed my 100th or 106th book club on Zoom. Wow. And Yeah, because I put the word out there. I said, listen, you guys, if you have a book club and you want me to come join the discussion about the henna artist, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm here. (laughs) I will will discuss it with you. I mean, after 10 years, I have all this pent-up energy. I want to talk about the characters. I want to talk about the decisions I made about who is in a relationship, who's not in a relationship, what, which relationships are going south, which relationships are going north. So I wanted to be able to discuss with people. And now I just feel so relieved that I can talk to thousands of people, not just in the U.S., but around the world. This has been a huge surprise to me. The henna artist is able to reach not only the Western audiences, but the Eastern audiences. Those people in Azerbaijan, in Pakistan, in India, in all of the, in Saudi Arabia, those people are loving the henna artist too. So it has this interesting, uh, a woman in the book club yesterday just happened to say this to me. 
She said, I have read books that are you know, really well received by Eastern audiences. And then I've read books by Indian authors that are well received by Western audiences. But I have not read a book yet that was received well by both audiences equally. And this book seems to straddle that fence well. So I just love that. I, I love hearing from readers who write to me from my website and in the back of my acknowledgments. I encourage readers to write to me and tell me what they think. And so they do. And I have people from all around the world saying, this feels like my story. This feels like my mother's story, my grandmother's story, my aunt's story. And then they'll share parts of their lives and their histories with me. So I am grateful for that. I think that is a remarkable thing. I love that. And, you know, I always talk about the power of literature, bringing people together and things like that. And I just love books that actually reach people and encourage them to tell their own stories and maybe uncover things about themselves they didn't know. I mean, to me, that's one of the greatest things about reading and books. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I always tell my book clubs after we're done talking is, I hope you will take the time to interview your mother, your father, your grandmother, anybody who is still alive, or encourage your daughters to interview you. Uh, And you'll, you'll be surprised at the kinds of things that come up. You know, what did you like to eat? Just basic things. What did you do on your way to school? What did you do after school? What are the games you like to play? Who, are, who were your friends? Describe your friends to me when you were 10, when you were 15, whatever. And through that, I think not only will you feel a deeper connection to your family, but also you will find out things about them that maybe you'll want to write about. History has historically been written <laughs> by men. And I would like for more female perspectives to come out in history. We want to hear from women and how they survived the major tragedies of their lives and what was happening in the world. So I hope that a lot more women will pick up the pen or get on that computer and start writing some of these histories. Well, I definitely think that is beginning to happen, and I think it's fabulous to encourage it. And I just cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed our discussion. Before we wrap up, I want to hear about what you have read recently and really liked that you would recommend to people. I read a book called The Yellow Bird Sings by Jennifer Rosner, and I found it to be a beautiful little book about uh, 1944 Poland. And we are following the Jewish, young Jewish family trying to escape the Nazis. And then I read another book called Pachinko by Min Jin Lee about the South Koreans and how they ended up in Japan and sort of their trajectory through four generations, which I just found so compelling. So I love reading about other time periods. I love reading about other places And I love to get lost in other worlds. I feel that that is the cheapest way to travel. And (laughs) especially right now, the only way to travel. So especially right now. Yeah. And I'm so happy that people are able to travel through books at a time when they cannot physically travel. I write several book articles and I was actually writing one this week and I was calling it armchair traveling because you're able to visit all these countries without leaving your your chair. So, but I, I just really appreciate your time coming and speaking with me. This has been so interesting and I'm just so glad you joined me. 
For me too, Cindy, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about the henna artist and my writing process. It's been a delight and I hope to continue it for the rest of my life. Well, it sounds like you will be because you've got several coming up. So that's great. And thanks again. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcast. I would really appreciate it. Alka's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. (laughs) I've never done it. (laughs) Right.